Hello and welcome to this special series, which is a collaboration between the World Innovation Summit for Education, the Agile Leaders of Learning Innovation Network, and the Learning Future. We hope you enjoy these conversations where we speak with different leaders from different networks about how do we become a networked leader, one of the key ways that leadership is evolving in terms of what's required for us to lead learning ecosystems. We hope you enjoy. Welcome, Greg. Um, it's a delight to have you with Dominic and I today, uh, conducting an interview on leading learning networks for the WISE All-In Group. Um, and we are really pleased to have you here with us. So just a quick intro. Um, I'm Robin. I'm from South Africa and from an organization called Africa Voices Dialogue. I have a a huge interest in understanding collaborative work and how we really support the evolution of functional and relational impact ecosystems um, for really high quality learning. Um, and I'm here with Dominic, so I'll allow Dominic if you could introduce yourself. Thanks, Robin. Hi, Greg. I'm Dominic Register. I'm a program director um, here at Salzburg Global Seminar for an independent nonprofit based in Salzburg in Austria. I lead our education programs. And we do a lot of work um, around network support and network incubation, including with the Wise Alling Group. And so really looking forward to this conversation with you today, Greg. Fantastic. Um, yeah, Greg, so, so um, the, reason, the reason that we, we, we wanted to chat to you is, is really because of your extensive experience in network leadership through uh, Remake Learning. Um, Lovely to have you with us, um, and and we'd be delighted if you could just um, share with your share with our listeners uh, who you are and where you're from, and a little bit more about the particular work that you're involved in and the networks that you participate in. Robin and Dominic, thank you. So I'm Greg Bear. I'm joining you all from Pittsburgh in the United States, where I serve as the executive director of a charitable grant making foundation called the Grable Foundation. I'm also co-author of a book entitled, When You Wonder You're Learning. And to the point of this conversation, I'm founder and co-chair of what today we call a learning ecosystem. We call it Remake Learning. It's work that began 15 years ago here in Southwestern Pennsylvania and also in Northern West Virginia in this corner of the world. And we talk about Remake Learning today as a network that advances relevant, engaging, and equitable learning for young people who we know are navigating rapid social and technological change. It's a network that involves more than 600 schools, museums, libraries, early learning centers, creative industries, and campuses of higher education across our region. Thousands of individuals who are involved in this network. Um, and so clearly this is a network in which I'm engaged in the place where I live. And when I think about my work generally, I have benefited tremendously from domestic United States networks like Grant Makes for Education, the Partnership for the Future of Learning and others. And one of the silver linings, if there can be silver linings to a pandemic, is that I, um, I've developed all sorts of wonderful networks internationally. I, I was engaged modestly at an international level before the pandemic, but I feel like the Zooming experience of two years has connected me with fellow Martians, like the two of you and others around the world who care about our kids, who understand the ways in which learning is changing and understand the promise and potential of learning in networks if we get them right in the places where we live and work to support young people. 
Yeah, thanks, Greg. That's that's an absolutely amazing reflection on a decade and a half of of work. And I think what is really um, remarkable is that, like so many of the powerful pieces of work, they start way before we have names for them. Um, so before that, that. Uh, Vocabulary for what is being created has has hit the public space. Um, a lot of the effective changes to education have been starting to be implemented, um, and it's really exciting to have models such as yours, which have a wealth of experience behind them, through which we can um, really think about how do we support leaders who are interested in this kind of leadership to develop their own learning ecosystems. Um, so perhaps if you could, could you share with us just a little bit about how this work started? What was it that um, initiated um, the decision to, to create networks of learning partners? And, uh, and, and how did you engage those partners? So let's take you back to late 2006, early 2007. I'm not sure I even had my Apple phone, iPhone at that point. There might not even been such a thing. So um, nearly 15 years ago, I was new to my position also at the Grable Foundation. So this coincides with my tenure here at the Grable Foundation. And I found myself meeting with teachers and librarians and youth workers, but also soon after I found myself meeting with technologists and artists and designers and others. And I heard them saying something that at first I didn't notice. And I heard them saying, well, I'm just not connecting with kids the way that I used to which I chalked up to just, you know, a generational adult thing that happens from generation to generation, adults saying like, ah, oh, kids these days. Um, but as I began to notice what these individuals were saying, as I was asking them about ways in which we could be helpful to them and the work that they do, I began to notice that these individuals were of different ages, of different years of experience in the classroom or library setting, and that they literally meant my class in 2005 versus 2006. And as I finally began to notice this and began to appreciate the field of the learning sciences, which I will acknowledge I probably knew very little about before 2006, 2007, and appreciating what was coming out of places like Carnegie Mellon University in our own backyard or MIT or the University of Washington and beginning to understand that we were learning so much about learning itself, that learning was changing dramatically, and that, in fact, young people were consuming information differently, producing information differently, developing identity differently. It began to prompt questions for us. Do we need to start making some different bets, some different bets on adults and the settings that we create for our young people? The instructional pedagogy in the, in the classroom, the physical design of spaces, whether in a school building, a museum or library, a change in approach to the experiences we create for young people after school or in summer learning settings. And in 2006, 2007, we started making some different bets. At the time, Remake Learning was called Kids and Creativity. It was merely a cluster of people who started gathering. And it was a mix of formal and informal educators, but also folks sort of at the periphery of education, like those technologists and researchers and others who care a lot about kids, but just were approaching their work differently. And we simply said, what would happen if we started bringing these folks together? What would that look like? What connections could we start forging if, in fact, we wanted to create greater learning experiences for young people, if, in fact, their future trajectory was so fundamentally different from our own? 
And to look back now, 15 years um, ahead, um, to look back 15 years from now, it, it, it was the right bet, right? It was definitely a bet at the time and a bet on an adult and the situations and settings and experiences we were creating for young people. It wasn't really until 2011, 2012, that this formalized structure of creating a network um, and what has subsequently become Remake Learning really took hold. So it was a number of years of just of relationship building and connecting and, and forging bonds among industries and fields that, yes, all cared about kids, but weren't actually working together and communicating together. Um, it was the simmering of that work for four or five years that really led to the network creation um, just about a decade ago. I love and admire so much about all of what you've been doing and what you've been talking about is, you know, the, the emphasis on creating a culture of collaboration and bringing together, you know, organizations that exactly like you said, all had, you know, significant interest in supporting children's learning in all of its different manifestations and children's well-being and happiness, but hadn't yet found the right environment for working together. But I imagine, and, and this is speculation and hypothesis, that when you're bringing together lots of different institutions, like that, that it isn't always smooth and plain sailing. So we'd love to hear a bit more about some of the challenges that you had to overcome in the early stages of this. And then we could think more about the impact that it's gone on to achieve, if that's okay. Yeah, so Dominic, it's interesting. When I look back, there, there wasn't necessarily, um, there wasn't conflict. There weren't obvious challenges. The challenges were more straightforward. One, the relationships, right? You know, technologists didn't have deep relationships working with first grade teachers. Folks in human-centered design didn't have close relationships with librarians. So one, it was just a matter of, of taking time and creating the space for people to build relationship with one another, which is really the unsexy work of any movement building. And second was the language. All of us who work in education know the acronyms that we love. We know the language that is particular to our field. And it was really sort of breaking down that language. And this is where I think we made ourselves lucky with that phrase, remake learning. And I can't take credit for it. Uh, someone else came up with that brilliant phrase. But what that phrase allowed was multifold. One, we know that organizations and individuals have self-interests. So some came into what became Remake Learning because they had an interest in arts-based education. Some were interested in science and STEM or STEAM-related education. Others were interested in digital media and learning. And at no point did we say, okay, let's stop and um, now we shall all do connected learning as one example. Rather, we sort of embraced the messiness of that language, embraced the, um, you know, the close cousins that STEM and STEAM and Maker and other types of frameworks that describe new approaches to learning, we just embraced the messiness and said, look, and under the umbrella of Remake Learning, this is all commonly focused work. And so, um, and so you can imagine then, Dominic, in that relationship building, people began to say like, oh, the work that I'm doing in digital media and learning, and that's how we describe it in the library. Well, that makes a lot of sense in the context of maker-centered learning that you're doing at the Children's Museum. And the teachers would say, well, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, we have a STEM orientation or we have a project-based learning orientation. And so that sort of mixing of frameworks and pedagogies and language um, was so important. So I would say the biggest challenges were, one, the relationship building, two, 
the, um, you know, embracing that language and getting it just enough right so that there was a common sensibility. And then the third challenge, which has been a perennial challenge, is just making sure that we attend to diversity, equity, access, and inclusion smartly. And we certainly haven't, um, I wouldn't call our work brilliant yet. It has gotten better year by year over 15 years as we think about the core role that justice and inclusion um, being as core to innovation and learning in the work. Um, and ideally we've been more and more deliberate about that work and intentional about that work year by year as we think about advancing this ecosystem called Remake Learning. You, did you start with a kind of clear articulation of the common purpose that would bring all these different institutions together? Or was there a co-creation element as you kind of zeroed in and refined exactly what it was? Because I think, I mean, there's, there's been some interesting research and in, in relatively recently around, you know, the, the impact that purpose-driven networks can have versus more kind of professional or sector networks. And when you can unite you know, people from very different kinds of organization around a very specific common cause, you can build community um, more quickly in, in some contexts. And so interested to hear about, yeah, the, the work that you put into defining the purpose at the beginning. So the answer to that question is yes. Um, and it's also true that the work in 2021 and beyond looks very different than the work in say 2010 or 2013. And there have probably been seven or eight times over the course of the last 15 years that we've done serious network-wide human-centered design training sessions, workshops, at times bringing together dozens, at other times bringing together hundreds of individuals involved in the network to re-examine what is our purpose, what is our mission, what is our vision for learning. And so that work has been very iterative, but it's been, to your point, very deliberative in its co-design of involving folks involved in the network. And I think of the 400 plus individuals who were involved ultimately in that wordsmithing of relevant, engaging, equitable learning, advancing learning for young people experiencing rapid social and technical technological change, right? I mean, just that, you know, we've, we've, we've done enough to build a just enough structure, as I described a moment ago, so that there is that, so that people can see both their self-interest and the altruistic purpose of what we're trying to achieve regionally in a way that spans jurisdictions, in a way that spans formal education and informal learning, in a way that spans early childhood education through higher education. Um, and I would credit a lot of ongoing um, human-centered design training. And it's also just the ongoing day in, day out work of remake learning itself. And so the monthly meetups, the communications and documentation, the ongoing storytelling, all of that is also crucial to the continuous movement building that's based on that co-design that is continuous work ultimately. Is there, do you have a kind of dispersed leadership approach to the network? So, you know, you talked about how the purpose has evolved over the 14 years or so. And has that been with, you know, with clear direction um, from you or, you know, your, your colleagues, or is it something that comes up from within the network as much as anything? So in, um, 
incredibly dispersed leadership. And there are probably things that we've gotten exactly right and things where we've made horrible mistakes. And there have been different leadership models throughout those 15 years. So for example, we now have something called the Remake Learning Council. That is a council of about 60 CEOs and learning scientists. So learning scientists from places like Carnegie Mellon University and the University of Pittsburgh, CEOs because they're superintendents of school districts, they're heads of museums and libraries, their business and political leaders. And this Remake Learning Council provides strategic counsel to the team that manages um, and supports Remake Learning. I mentioned the Remake Learning Council because it only came into being maybe six years ago, six or seven years ago. So it wasn't there 15 years ago. Um, when I think about the work of events and delegations and meetups, and then these working groups that we have, like Computer Science for Pittsburgh, CS for PGH, or the Pittsburgh STEM ecosystem, PGH STEM. These have variously been led by individuals with whom we Remake Learning has contracted. We've also contracted with, with organizations at times. We've had volunteer leaders in the community who hold other leadership positions at museums or schools as chairs of these groups. So there, there have been so many different leadership models that we've used along the way. And this is really learning from the work of, of network building. And while 15 years ago, we didn't have the language of learning ecosystems, we did have the language of economic impact clusters and some of the work that had come out of MIT and elsewhere at the time to understand that in a network, there are many hubs and we sort of have to embrace the fact that leadership can come in many places. And that's also been true, Dominic, as we thought about individuals. Because for example, if we think just about schools, Sometimes the leader, the person who's been the impetus for getting their school or school district involved in remake learning, maybe that person is the superintendent. Sometimes it's the principal. Sometimes it's been the physical education teacher, right? So really understanding and appreciating that leadership is a plaza and uh, leadership comes forth from many different places and, um, and we need to support individuals in those different ways. So that's a many layered answer to your question. But a beautiful answer. And, and Greg, you know, um, I think really looking through this lens of some of the things we've dealt with. So, so purpose, uh, aligning around purpose, autonomy, actually freedom of choice, freedom of movement, freedom of development, and then mastery. What I've, what I've heard you saying now is, is this real, uh, the, the, the strength of distributed leadership, which is in understanding that when we allow people who have really clear skill sets to lead component parts of the network and component parts of the work, you build something incredibly resilient um, and very powerful. Um, and what I'd like to ask, because I've really heard it coming through so much, and, and it's, a, it's a really important aspect, I think, is that what I'm hearing is that your focus was not on the outcome. So you didn't set about a, to create a learning ecosystem. Okay. Um, you didn't necessarily set about to connect all these people for the purpose of perfection. You paid attention to the relationship and the relationships first and really gathering people around purpose orientation and around dreams that they had, um, having porous borders. And then it seems to me what I'm hearing is an enormous amount of attention paid to the relational substrate, like the work of creating environments where people can connect and build relationships. Um, 
what would you say the value of really attending to that foundational work is? It's so invisible. People often neglect it and forget it in, in striving for the outcome. Um, but that's something I've really heard coming through strongly from what you're saying. Well, I appreciate that question. And it makes me think of Dominic's comments just earlier about creating a culture. It's not just about creating a culture internal to a school building or internal to an after-school program or other side of learning. As important as that is, it's really creating a, a different culture of learning in a region. You know, quite frankly, it would have been a lot easier to say, we all have this reading by third grading goal and we're all gonna pursue this together, right? What we said is we need to create a different atmosphere for learning across our entire region, an atmosphere for learning whereby adults think differently about their role and what it is that they're creating in the learning settings for which they're responsible, a different atmosphere for learning by which media and journalists cover education and related learning issues in our region, a dip, different atmosphere by which politicians and those who control public budgets might think about supporting education and learning differently. A different atmosphere for learning by which young people and their families think about their region as a learning campus and how it is that they support their own interests or the interests of their kids in the care. If a kid is lit up by coding or making or other things um, that don't fit neatly into boxes. And so um, the work has really been about creating this different atmosphere for learning. Now, there are many layers to that because there's the support then for professional development and learning. There's the support for regional working groups around areas of particular interest like maker-centered learning or personalized learning. There's support for the ongoing community organizing. And maybe most importantly, there is deep support for the ongoing communications, marketing, and documentation of what's happening, how it's happening. Because we have experienced a fundamental shift in learning. And even just that shift in word from education to learning has been profound for our region, for school leaders, for teachers, for parents and families, for journalists and others to think about what's happening as constituted in learning and really blurring what happens in and out of school. Yes, schools are still critically important. They're the fulcrum for young people's experiences. And they spend uh, you know, 80% of their waking hours outside of a school building. And so we've really tried to create that sensibility of learning in a region. And core then to thinking about that is the ways in which we support adults. And so Robin, it goes exactly to your question about the relationships and forging different relationships so that teachers, for example, in a really practical way, know better what, not only know better what's happening in the after-school programs, the museums, the libraries, the other places of learning in the community, but then can actively be involved in supporting their students or the parents of their students in suggesting opportunities. Because really, each of us is a facilitator in these young people's experiences. And the more that we are connected to one another, the more that we know how to support the kids in our care, we're gonna create that atmosphere for learning that'll be more brilliant for our learners. When you started it, then it sounds like, you know, it was in, at least initially very much defined by geography and that you were bringing together institutions that would all be, you know, working with the same core group of children or you know, possible for you know, the same students, the same children to, to experience what the different institutions were offering. Um, and you can kind of really understand the power and importance of that. But one of the interesting things which has 
you know, the last 18 months has changed. And we were talking about this just before we started recording is, you know, how the, the pandemic and the experience of everything moving online has collapsed some of those ideas of, of geography. And you can build really meaningful relationships with people on the other side of the world now, you know, in a way that I don't think we used to, or certainly in my work, I never got to, to this extent pre-pandemic. And I wondered, you know, how you're thinking about the, the parameters of the network had changed and was it important for you to keep that sense of you know, organizations that could work with the same students or have you expanded it or are you replicating it in other parts of the world with the same ingredients? Well, our work is deeply local. So we're not, um, uh, world domination is not <laughs> in the cards for us. I mean, we're still fundamentally trying to change the learning experiences for young people in Southwestern Pennsylvania and Northern West Virginia. <laughs> um, and uh, we're only 15 years into that, you know, what is generational work? Now, I will say you're right. I mean, everything changed during these past two years of this COVID pandemic, and it's continuously changing. And we have thoughts about post-pandemic learning, and I'll turn to that in a moment. But what I will say, when I think about, for example, the schools that found themselves in positions such that they, they only missed like one or two days of school in the transition to from what they were to what they needed to be as the pandemic unfolded. Not surprisingly, in retrospect, these were the schools that had invested in culture. Yes, they had the technology infrastructure, but they had invested in the professional development and learning and they had attended more than anything to the culture um, such that they were really ready to pivot to something totally different. To the, your point about geographies, I think, for example, of local school districts that reached out immediately to Carnegie Mellon University, as well as local private companies, and utilized MetaMesh and other technologies to address um, technological and broadband challenges that their students faced. And years of relationship allowed, for example, the Cornell School District to pick up the phone and call their colleagues at Carnegie Mellon University because they knew them. I think, for example, of teachers who worked across school district boundaries to create amazing learning experiences, as Anna Blake, a teacher at Elizabeth Ford, did with Melissa Unger at the South Fayette School District. And so we saw those, those barriers come immediately down, but they came down more easily because those relationships were there and there was 15 years of organizing. We also took advantage of those relationships regionally and then also statewide with the Pennsylvania Department of Education to begin thinking through seemingly way back now in the summer of 2020, what does post-pandemic learning look like? And in 2020 published a regional piece about post-pandemic learning opportunities and identified very concrete things that our schools and other sites of learning might, might accomplish in a post-pandemic world. That led then to more formalized work, both with the Pennsylvania Department of Education and KnowledgeWorks, an organization based in Cincinnati, Ohio, that among other things, does a lot of future forecasting as it relates to education. And we ended up involving more than a thousand administrators from across the Commonwealth in Pennsylvania in a, in a human-centered design process that led to, among other things, a publication called What Comes Next. And so, it's an example of those relationships, pushing down those barriers that we create, that we adults create for ourselves in the systems that we actually operate and manage um, in thinking through our post-pandemic learning opportunities. And as we think about a post-pandemic learning future, we framed it according to methods, relationships, and justice. 
And so um, when I think about the opportunities ahead, I'm actually incredibly excited when I think about, again, it seems weird to say the upside of these past two years, but the upside of what now might be possible because of the empathy that was built up among and across sites of learning and together with our communities. Um, now we obviously have some challenges and there is obvious trauma and dislocation and um, fractured um, community experience among us. And yet we still have some incredible opportunities as we think to a post-pandemic learning future. And that's what we endeavored to lay out. Oh, phenomenal. Greg, this has been the most uh, fantastic conversation. I, I'm, I'm really heart sore that we can't carry on for hours. Um, but, but what um, I'd really like to ask, just as sort of a final question, um, and as something really pragmatic for, for our listeners to take away with them, is it that if you, if you could, looking back over this incredible journey that you've been on and the incredible journey that you are still on, um, is there one piece of advice that you would give to yourself when starting on this leadership journey in relationship to, to networks and to connecting with, with multiple uh, players outside of your own immediate organization? All right, I'll give more than one. <laughs> because I'd love to go back and talk to myself. So one is just start, right? When I think about what was Kids in Creativity became Remake Learning, it literally began with a coffee meeting with one other person that led to a pancake breakfast with a dozen people. And that pancake breakfast then, you know, led to a pancake breakfast with two dozen people, right? And so one is just a matter of stepping outside of where you are, what you're doing, and connect with those fellow Martians and finding them. Two, uh, to my point earlier, embrace that messiness of language and also invest deeply, deeply in communications, marketing, and, um, and just storytelling. Now, that's a hard jump from A to B to get there, but I didn't appreciate the importance of deeply investing in that ongoing storytelling. The third thing I would say is celebrate, right? There is magic happening in every school, in every neighborhood, in every site of learning. And it's in fact why we launched something called Remake Learning Days. So Remake Learning Days is now an annual festival that's held not only in, um, in the Pittsburgh region, but now has spread and taken root in 17 other cities across America. So Remake Learning Days is a chance for schools, museums, libraries to host an event that celebrates maybe their new work in learning. They open up their maker lab. They open up the STEM corner in the library. They open up a space that allows parents, families, and caregivers to see how learning is being remade, how to support the kids in their care, and then to begin to plant the seeds of, of building demand among parents for new approaches to learning. I mention this because Remake Learning Days, yes, could happen in an entire region, but it could also happen in a singular school. It could happen in a singular library. And we've seen that happen in places, not only in America, but Christchurch, New Zealand, and in Barcelona, Spain. And so remakelearningdays.org is a great website to learn more. And in fact, Ted Dintersmith and his um, team with What School Could Be on their playlist have a great, um, a couple of great videos about doing, celebrating progress in your own communities and doing Remake Learning Days, even if it's just in the place where you are and not region or citywide. Amazing, Greg, thank you so much for sharing everything that you have with us today. And you know, for your generosity with your ideas, 
and your time. Um, it's been fantastic to talk to you and learn more about Remake Learning's work. Um, Robin, it's been a pleasure to do this with you. Um, for anyone listening, uh, Greg's book, When You Wonder Your Learning, was published earlier this year. It's highly recommended, in which he explores some of the ideas that we've talked about in this podcast. Uh, and once again, you know, from all of us connected with the Wise All In uh, initiative, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you. What a joy to be with you both. Thank you. I'm grateful. Thank you, Greg, and really looking forward to being part of your learning network. <laughs>